pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, guys, it's the second week in a row. You don't got to hear me preach. I am getting downright lazy. We're good. <laughs> I guess spirit's in the room, so we're good. Um, so second week in a row, you don't have to hear me preach. I'm getting downright lazy over here, and it's, it's wonderful. Uh, I, I, I will be back in the pulpit next week. But we have a really cool opportunity today. I'm going to introduce you guys to uh, my friend, my brother in Christ, Jim Donahue. Uh, Jim is the pastor of West County Bible Church. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of that. It's this little church in Ellisville. Uh, it has a neat little building, perfect for just you know, socially distanced gatherings of churches. It's, uh, I couldn't be better suited. Uh, but no, we are, we're, we're privileged to have Jim. He's going to take us through um, our text and acts today. Uh, and I'm going to pray a blessing over him. But I just, man, I, I know you guys know this, but this church has been really kind to us. And, and, and a lot of that just has to do with the kingdom-minded leadership of uh, my friend, my brother, Jim. We, we met in an amazing way, which was that I was leading a discipleship group at McDonald's at like 6 a.m. I don't know if you know who hangs out in McDonald's at 6 a.m., but uh, it's mostly not young guys doing discipleship groups. And <laughs> a sweet woman came over and talked to me afterward and said, you're a pastor, aren't you? You should meet my pastor and gave me uh, Jim's contact info. And, and, and just we have built a sweet friendship since then. And obviously, God was in that and had plans for that, which is really cool. So Jim, if you want to come up here, I'm going to say a quick prayer blessing over you, and then we uh, are going to be blessed to hear from God and hear from his word today. Father, I thank you so much for the gift, the privilege of your word. God, I thank you that we can sit together with pastors and brothers from, from other churches, and we are immediately bonded together because of you and your work on our, half, on our behalf. God, we ask uh, your blessing over Jim today, your anointing over him as he takes us through your text. God, we ask that you would just speak clearly in the way that our hearts need today. God, we love you. We trust you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, brother. Well, I knew one of the most difficult things for me was going to uh, not get up here and say good morning. <laughs> I don't think I've ever preached at four o'clock in the afternoon, but it certainly is uh, an honor to be with, here with you all. So as I get quickly set up here, or maybe not so quickly, um, I wanted to, to say a couple things about uh, your pastors. Uh, it has been an absolute treat and blessing for me to get to know Sam. Uh, we have known each other now for about three years. And, uh, and then on, about a year and a half ago, uh, Craig started getting involved with our meetings. And uh, it has just been wonderful. Uh, I love your guys' pastors. I got a chance to meet Jesse at one of your guys' elders' uh, meetings not too uh, long ago. Haven't met Mike yet. Is Mike here? But uh, I wanted to thank him for being one of those first responders. Um, okay, I'm having problems here. Let me try this one more time. But you know, your guys, you know them better than I do, but I can honestly say that these men have character. Uh, they love Jesus. Uh, they have a heart and a passion for the gospel. And uh, our hearts just knit 
really quickly as uh, we got to spend some time together. Uh, but the one thing that I have to say uh, concerning Sam, there's, there's one thing that he's influenced me probably more than anything, and I can take this thing off. But, um, and that is, two weeks ago he came to preach at our church, and he was wearing his infamous purple pants. And so I figured I had to wear some kind of purple here today, so I got my purple shirt on, and I can honestly uh, say that Sam is my style guru. So, um, so the title of this morning's message is Kingdom Risk, and I had a problem trying to de- decide which title I wanted, so I have another one, and it is Forsaking Risk-Free Christianity. As I understand it, for the last few months, your pastors have been walking you through the book of Acts, the founding years of the church, how it got started taking a closer look at those men and women who chose to risk in obedience to Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. By saying yes to the call of Christ, they put everything on the line to partner with Christ in the building of his church, of laying a solid foundation for what we experience in church life today, in many ways showing us how it's to be done. A church would not exist today if it weren't for those men and women throughout the preceding generations who were willing to put everything on the line to glorify Christ and advance his name in their world. So I decided to look up the word risk in Webster's Dictionary, and there's a few things that they had to say about it. And the first was exposing oneself to the possibility of injury, loss, or death. Another said the potential for danger or harm implies a future uncertainty as to the outcome of your choice. And then finally, the possibility of rejection, ridicule, our persecution, especially in regards to what we're going to talk about today. In the business and investing world, you hear terms like risk assessment and risk management, which involves advanced planning to minimize the potential for negative outcomes in regard to risk. There's also foolish kind of risk, drinking and driving, living a promiscuous sexual life, living beyond your financial means, parasailing, cliff jumping, hang gliding, parachuting. I've done the first two, but I haven't got a chance to do the last. I'm not speaking here about alleviating all adventure from our lives. But I think most often our decisions to open our lives to risk are connected to our desire to advance ourselves in life, to advance our careers or increase our financial standing. To fulfill lifelong desires related to the American dream. There's nothing wrong with any of these unless they are to the forsaking of kingdom risk. Often kingdom risk will lead a person to say no to those things that advance his or her status in the world because they're saying yes to kingdom risk. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to attend a Red Tree Elders meeting. And like I said, while I've known Sam for three years, And Craig, for about a year and a half, I got to meet Jesse for the first time and find out a little more about him. From what I understand, he earned a degree and was in pursuit of becoming a lawyer. And that's a smart decision. That's a great career choice. Future financial wealth and security. A decision his parents and family endorsed. But the further Jesse pursued this path, the more he realized that he wanted to live for something bigger than the advancement of self. He wanted to live a life of risk for the kingdom of Christ, and he felt like being a lawyer for him would be an obstacle to that. 
He felt the call of God and chose to take a lesser paying job to become a pastor here at Red Tree and pursue the vision to one day plant another church. In full support of his wife, they both have set out on a life path that involves saying yes to kingdom risk. And from talking with Jesse, they have experienced some ridicule for making that decision. So since you've been in the book of Acts for a while now, I thought we could do a quick review of the first eight chapters of Acts to help us once again understand how we've gotten here to chapter 9. And the goal that I want, I want you to answer a question this afternoon. And that question is, is my life characterized by kingdom risk? And listen, I'm right here with you guys. Just because I've been a pastor for 30 years and my wife Lisa and I have made life decisions in the past that involve kingdom risk, it doesn't mean that we're still making those decisions 30 years later. I'm challenged by this message as I hope you guys are. So let's do a review. Let's look for examples of kingdom risk in the first eight chapters of Acts. First of all, Jesus rises from the dead, and it's what we're going to be celebrating together just in just two weeks, and I am really excited about us joining together as churches to do that. Then he appears to over 500 of his followers, and he gives final instructions. And I'm sure most of you know the Great Commission passage in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And then in Acts 1.8, he says, You will receive power from on high when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He ascends to heaven. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples during Pentecost, and the believers in Christ are empowered. Peter stands before a huge crowd of Jews, where he was formerly with the rest of the disciples. You remember, he denied Christ three times out of fear, and then after Jesus was crucified, they all went in hiding because of fear that the same thing was going to happen to them. And now all of a sudden, after the Holy Spirit comes upon him, Peter stands before this huge crowd, members that probably were part of saying, crucify him, crucify him, concerning Jesus. And boldly preaches the gospel where 3,000 people believed and were baptized and turned into one glorious Long baptism service. This is the start of Christ's church. And then in Acts 2, 42 through 47, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It said they had everything in common. They met in their houses and broke bread and shared meals together. And they were worshiping and praising God. And, and it was a dynamic in their community that it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Powerful preaching, teaching, worship, community, discipleship. Even healings are taking place in this community that's full of love and grace and power. And this community is magnetic. And the church continues to grow throughout Jerusalem. It said even many of the Jewish priests were converting to Christianity. And chapter 7 in Acts brings us to a man named Stephen. And he's described as a man full of wisdom and grace and of the Holy Spirit. And he's out there boldly preaching and teaching. And then all of a sudden a, an unruly mob seizes him because they're accusing him of blasphemy. They didn't like what he had to say. So they, the mob takes Stephen before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, where he was asked by the high priest if the accusation of blasphemy was true. 
He even responds to the question by taking them through the entire Old Testament. He takes them all through Jewish history, from the patriarchs all the way up to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then Stephen ends his message by rebuking their stubborn, stiff-necked hearts and the rejection and killing of the Messiah. The crowd rushes Stephen, seizes him, throws him outside. They surround him and they begin to stone him to death. And this is where we're introduced to our main character of chapter 9, which is Saul of Tarsus. What was Saul's life like before Christ? Well, he was standing there cheering on the stoning of Stephen. They were laying their cloaks at Saul's feet as he cheered them on. Because of Saul and others, a great persecution broke out against the church, and believers fled for their lives to Judea and Samaria. Saul began to do everything in his power to destroy the church. He went from house to house and dragged off men and women, and he couldn't care less if he was dragging husbands from their wives or parents from their children. This is how heartless and cruel he was. Saul had so much hatred for Christians, he was consumed by one passion, to eradicate the followers of Jesus from the earth and put an end to this heresy. It wasn't enough that he had broken up the church in Jerusalem after Stephen's death. Now he's traveling 125 miles to Damascus to hunt down all the followers of Christ that he can that have fled there, that have fled from Jerusalem and bring them back to there to be thrown into prison. I don't want you to miss something that's very important that's happening here in the midst of this persecution. The church and its mission appear to be in trouble. It looks like this thing will quickly fade after such a remarkable start. Through all this persecution and injustice against the church, this is what I don't want you to miss. God has an eternal plan that cannot be stopped. Those believers who are experiencing such powerful ministry and wonderful community as they got comfortable enjoying their Christian experience in Jerusalem, they must have forgotten something. And that's what comfortable, enjoyable community can sometimes do. It can cause us to focus all on ourselves. We're enjoying the experience. We're loving one another. We're, we're, we're loving our church service. We're loving our small groups. And sometimes they can lead us to forget about the mission. And I think that's possibly what happened in Jerusalem. They were having such a great time together, and God was moving in their midst, and they were experiencing wonderful community, but they forgot about Judea and Samaria. That's where they ended up fleeing. But if you think that they scattered to Judea and Samaria just to hide in fear because of the persecution, you'd be wrong because in Acts 8.4 it says, those who scattered preached the word wherever they went. That's amazing. The per persecution was so intense in Jerusalem that they fled for their lives, but that didn't stop them from advancing the gospel to the very areas that Jesus said that he wanted them to be witnesses this is vitally important example to us in the United States. Christianity, for the most part, life for American Christians has been persecution-free. All our brothers and sisters in China, the Middle East, Africa, North Korea, India, and other places throughout the world, they're persecuted daily for their faith in Christ. They're ostracized from their family and society. They're beaten. Their possessions are confiscated. They're imprisoned, and some are even killed just for believing in Jesus. I believe for many American Christians, living without persecution has led to a comfortable, convenient, risk-free approach to living out our faith. We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. We want to be included by others who don't 
believe as we do, no one likes rejection and ridicule. But Jesus says something very interesting about this in John 15, 18 through 20. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So Jesus is telling those followers of his, those who would come after him, he says, listen, guys, they hated me. So if you're going to live for me, if you're going to be a fully devoted follower of mine, if you're going to be about the same things that I'm about, if you're going to be about the mission that I've given you, you know what? They're going to hate you too. He says, if you belong to the world, you know what? They're going to love you as their own. And that's telling us as Christians that, that if we are just like the world, if we're not Christians that don't want to create waves, if we're kind of, you know, undercover, the radar, you know, kind of Christians, well, you know what? They're going to love you just like one of them. And you'll be included and you'll be accepted. But Jesus says, I called you out of the world. And that doesn't mean that he's called us to, you know, go in hiding from the world and go into our Christian subculture and our Christian community and, and just kind of do our Christian thing. He says, when he says, I've called you out of the world, he means you're to be distinctly different while in the world. Dr. Paul Carlson said more believers have died for Christ in the last century than all the previous centuries combined. But then he goes on to say this. The question to ask is not why are we being persecuted, but why are we not being persecuted? These first Christians are an example for us. They refused to give in to fear. They boldly lived out their faith in the midst of intense persecution. In a world of persecution against Christians, they continued to share the gospel everywhere they went. There's a second dramatic thing God will do to carry out his plan to ensure that the church will continue on even to the ends of the earth. He scatters them so that they'll advance the gospel, but then the leading persecutor of the church is to become its greatest evangelist. Isn't that amazing? This man named Saul from Tarsus will later be called Paul, and he's going to become the church's greatest evangelist, missionary, church planter, preacher, teacher, theologian, and author of 13 books of the New Testament, books that we've read over and over and that has a great, had a great impact on our lives. I think we can glean two truths from what God does in persecution. And the first one is no matter how bleak things may get in our country, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. God can always work something good in the midst of the bleakest circumstances. And His eternal plan, it's never going to be defeated. God is still on the move and will glorify Himself through it all. The second thing that we can get out of it is no one is beyond God's reach. No one is beyond the love and grace of God. Whoever it is in your life, a spouse, a child, a parent, a sibling, someone from your extended family, a friend, a neighbor, a boss, a co-worker, that person who you have given up on, don't give up on them. If God can save Saul, he can reach down and save anyone. 
Keep praying, keep loving on them, keep serving, keep sharing the truth with that difficult person, and trust God for the rest. So Saul places his faith in Christ. He's on the road to Damascus as he travels there to persecute Christians, and he has an encounter with the risen Christ. It says that he was confronted by a light, and it's the brilliance of Christ's glory and moral perfection that, that blinds him. It reminds me of the verse in, Re- in Revelation, in John's heavenly vision, where he says, His face shone as if it was the sun. While Saul's conversion is unique, one thing is common to us all. It's what Sam prayed so passionately about. God initiated your salvation. God pursued you. And in that, each one of us should find great joy. God came after me. God wanted me as his very own. You're that special. Never forget that. For three days, Saul is blind. And all he can do is ponder his life. The failures, the mistakes he made, just how wrong he was concerning Christ and all the people he had hurt. And he laid there talking things over with God. I believe Saul must have been facing his guilt and shame during this time. He must have experienced brokenness over how wrong he was and all the people he had hurt. You see, because Saul's pride had to become humility if he was ever to become useful to God. It's as Jesus said, if a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it, it doesn't abide alone. And what he's talking about there in agriculture is just a seed needs to be broken over from an outer shell in order to come out and produce a crop. And if Saul's not broken, if we're not broken, if we're not humbled by the sin in our life, then we can't be useful to God either. He's fasting, for he refuses to eat or drink anything for three days, and the text in there says that he's praying. The religion he wants to live by the law has now become a relationship with God by grace, which is the hallmark of the eternal life that every one of us has. I mean, how amazing is it that the creator of the universe, the sovereign, eternal God, has a relationship with you and I, a personal, intimate relationship? I mean, doesn't that boggle your mind sometimes? Paul will be of no use to God's kingdom plan if someone doesn't come alongside him. But, but who's going to do that? Who's going to come alongside someone with such a hateful and murderous reputation as Saul of Tarsus? Those who do must be willing to risk it all. In Acts 9, 10 through 19, which was a text that uh, I think it's Pastor Mike. Yeah, he preached. You know, just a little side note. I kind of felt like it was a bait and switch. You know, Pastor Mike preached last week. And so I know, I'm thinking Sam's going to be preaching before me. So I got online to see, you know, what's Sam going to have to say about the first part of Acts 9? And and that's tough enough to follow Sam. Sam's a great dynamic preacher. But then I'd seen Pastor Mike and it's like, I thought about calling him on Monday and saying, I think you should preach. But in Acts 9, 10 through 19, we're introduced to a man named Ananias a devoted follower of Christ, probably a leader in the church there in Damascus. God comes to him in a vision and tells him he must go to a man named Saul who's blind and lay hands on him to restore his sight. 
But you see, in that text, at first, God doesn't tell Ananias anything about Saul's con- conversion. And let's go ahead and take a look at Ananias' initial response and turn to your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 9, 13 and 14. And we'll go ahead and read there. Acts chapter 9, 13 and 14. So here's Ananias' response. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So Ananias, is, he's saying here, whoa, wait a minute here, Lord. I've heard of this guy's murderous reputation. He's infamous. He's come to Damascus to confiscate and imprison Christians, and he probably is coming after me and my family. He heard that I'm one of the leaders in the church. This is too much, Lord. This is too risky. You're just asking too much of me. But then in the next verses, the Lord finally reveals that Saul has placed his faith in him, and he now has a role in his kingdom plan, which will involve much suffering. And so let's go ahead and read what happens when Ananias goes to Saul. Verses 17 through 19. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So the two words that I really want to focus on here are the words, Brother Saul. At this point, Saul must feel like he is a man without a country or a people. The Jews are going to despise him for rejection of the Jewish faith, and the Christians are going to hate him for all the horrible things that he'd done to them. Ananias puts his hand on his shoulder and says those two words, Brother Saul. That must have been music to his ears. That must have been healing salve to his heart. For those words and actions were those of acceptance and inclusion. The dreaded and feared fanatic was now received as a member of God's family. Saul was once lost, but now he's found. He was blind, but now he sees. And that was both a physical and a spiritual healing in his life. And let me ask you, could you have welcomed this man into Red Tree Church? How about if you, our family members or friends, had suffered under his hand? What if one of your family members was thrown in prison or beaten? Kingdom risk is always going to involve reaching out and accepting difficult people. Those who have hurt you are your loved ones. Kingdom risk will always involve forgiveness and reconciliation when possible. Now let's move on to the remainder of the text in Acts 9, and let's uh, take a look at 19 through 30. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Is he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest?' 
It Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. See, I told you that God's plan still is going to carry on, even in the midst of the persecution. So Saul spent several days with the disciples, and he's probably enrolled in some very intense discipleship. Saul immediately began to preach in the synagogues, and and Saul was already a brilliant theologian. He knew the Old Testament ins and outs as a zealous Jew, and now clearly he sees how the Scriptures connect to the message of the Gospel. He sees that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And so just after three days, he's preaching boldly the truth of the Gospel. It said people who heard him were astonished by his teaching, especially because they knew his former reputation as a persecutor of Christians. The devout Jews were baffled. And then it says, after many days, and from my study, it comes to that it was actually three years that he was in Damascus, and during that time, the Jews conspired to kill him. In verse 29, it said, when he went back to Jerusalem, he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews who also tried to kill him. This was the life of Paul, a man willing to choose kingdom risk rather than a life of comfort, ease, seclusion, and safety. After those three years, Saul returns to his hometown of Jerusalem, and we read that when he tried to join the disciples, they rejected him, fearing that he was faking his conversion and wanted to infiltrate their ranks as a spy. But Barnabas decides to take a risk. He brings Saul to the disciples and shares with them Saul's story of conversion and what he had been doing in Damascus for the past three years. And, and that was a risk for Barnabas. Barnabas is a young man. He's going to the leaders of the church. You know, he's going to the big guys, the disciples who are with Jesus. And he's saying, hey guys, you know, I think you're wrong in this one. Let me tell you about Saul. The disciples embrace Saul into their leadership community. And he moves around freely throughout Jerusalem preaching the gospel. Christian, you, you live in a world where you have a choice. There are moments when you can risk and step into something that God is doing, or you can choose to play it safe and try to protect yourself from people, from change, from stepping outside of your comfort zone. By nature, we're really good at self-protection from difficult people, from frightening circumstances, from someone or something interrupting our schedule or our preferred routine, from anything trying to move us out of our comfort zone, and change has become a four-letter word. I don't want to take the chance of losing what I have come to love so much. It reminded me of the story of Jim Elliot. 
who graduated from Wheaton College, which was a Christian college in Chicago. And he and his four friends had decided that they were going to be missionaries to the Aka, which was an inner jungle tribe in the remote forest of Ecuador. The Aka had a reputation of being savage and very vicious, one of the most dangerous tribes in South America. These four men took their families with them to Ecuador. They communicated in different ways with the tribe over a period of three months, and they often dropped shipments of supplies to the tribe to try to warm them up to them. One day they left their families and flew their plane to the beach near a river on the outskirts of the jungle where the Aka tribe was known to have lived. On the sixth day, the Aka came out of the jungle with spears and killed all five missionaries. Many don't know this, but Jim Elliott had a gun in his pocket, but he never reached into his pocket for it. These five missionaries had made a promise to each other that if the Aka ever attacked, they would not self-protect. If we die, we know we're going to heaven. We're not going to kill the Aka who don't know Jesus in order to protect our lives here on earth. The United States military had to go in to retrieve their bodies. And the first thoughts by almost everybody were, what a waste that these five men who could have done so much for Christ were cut down in their prime. No one saw what was coming next. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, shocked the world by announcing, we're going back. We're taking our families back to the Aka. Could you imagine who does that? Who has that kind of love for lost people? Who can forgive like that? The very men who killed their husbands and robbed their children of fathers. We're going back. As they returned and began to minister to them, some of the men in the tribe said this, When we saw how your husbands died and laying down their lives, we knew we killed holy men. Please tell us about your God. Elizabeth Elliot led her husband's murderer to Christ. In Jim Elliot's diary, these words were written, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Godly risk is always right. What potentially risky thing is God asking you to do? What godly risk is He asking you to take? What godly risk may be He may be asking Red Tree to do as a church? If you believe God is leading, are you willing to take the risk? You know, we come from a long line of risk takers. Think of the Christians that were just mentioned in this message. Peter gives a bold message before antagonistic Jews, and 3,000 come to faith. Stephen boldly preaching the gospel, and he's martyred for his faith. There's men and women who fled from persecution, but rather than hide in fear, they preached the gospel wherever they went. Families who continued on in the faith while their loved ones were taken off to prison. Ananias, once sought after by the persecutor, goes to him and lovingly embraces him as a brother in Christ. Barnabas, when Saul is rejected by the disciples, brings Saul to them. He defends him and Paul is welcome into the leadership community. And then Paul boldly preached the truth wherever he went and time after time people sought to kill him, but that didn't stop him. Where would we be today if it wasn't for these men and women 
who in spite of the apparent danger and risk, said yes to God. To close this morning, if you remember, we started out the message by saying that our goal was to honestly answer a question for ourselves. And you know the beautiful thing about coming together on Sundays and our God is that He is so personal that even though all of you just heard the same message, He can meet us right where we're at and speak something different to each and every one of us concerning how He's convicting us, concerning how He's challenging us, concerning how He may want us to step out and live in kingdom risk. The question is, is my life characterized by kingdom risk? And what's your answer? This generation and the next desperately needs male and female disciples like Ananias and and Barnabas, who in spite of the risk, will choose to live boldly for Christ in a world that increasingly hates him. And we are living in a country of people that are increasingly hating the name of Jesus. The path of discipleship is the path to the cross. It's the path to kingdom risk. It doesn't matter if you're 20 here this afternoon or 80 or some age in between. As long as you walk this planet, Jesus is calling you to a life of kingdom risk. And your pastors are called to lead this church into kingdom risk. I want to encourage you to follow them and stand amazed at the awesome things God does in your midst. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we continue to worship you. We, we just are so amazed at your love and your grace and how personal and intimate you are with each and every one of us. We're, we stand amazed that we can have a relationship with you, the eternal God of the universe, the God who created and spoke all things into existence, condescended so that we might have a relationship. You came on a rescue mission for us, Jesus, and we are so thankful that you initiated this salvation that we know by faith through grace. And as you've moved in our midst through your Holy Spirit this afternoon, Father, I pray that as you've spoken individually to each person who is here, I pray that they would have well up with courage through your Spirit to take the steps that you're asking them to take. Begin to truly forsake risk-free Christianity, and step in boldly to what it is that you're leading and asking them to do. I pray for this church, Lord, and I pray for the leaders, Lord, that they'd always be close to you and hearing from you and leading this church into kingdom risk. And just they would all stand back and be amazed as the first church was that God was moving and working and adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Help us not to forget the mission as we, we love each other and we love what we're experiencing in community. Help us not just to make it about ourselves. Help us to know that you called us together as a church to continue on the mission that they started over 2,000 years ago to continue and advance the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we go. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jim, for bringing the word. Church, I think we can all agree the Spirit had something in that for us today. Amen? Here's what I'd like for us to do. I'm going to, we got time for this, and so I'm going to give us a minute here. I'd love for you to take a minute and be in prayer and sit with Jesus. And man, Jim asked us a really good question. 
And I'd love for you to just bring that question to Jesus in honesty in your heart. Do you take risks for the kingdom? Does your life actually live into the risk of the kingdom? Is there, is there something hanging in front of you right now? Like, as he was talking about that, did the Spirit just kind of poke you and go, yep, yep. What is that? Well, let's take a minute and, and, and honestly just talk to Jesus about that. What, what is the thing he's asking of you? Asking of our church. Asking of our community. Sit with Spirit. See what he says to you. If you can do that in your chair, by all means, if you need to find some space to get on your knees and pray, if you want to grab one of the pastors to pray with you, me, Craig, and Jesse are here. We're available. But let's, uh, let's take a couple minutes and be with Jesus in prayer. And then I'll close this out and we'll, we'll sing again.